It's good to see all of you this morning and good to be here. Today we're going to be looking at prayer. A few weeks ago, we looked at the command to pray for one another. And, and, and that command in James 5 was given in the context of praying in all seasons. Let me read that, the, the verse that we looked at last week. James 5, verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And singing to God is, is prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And then skipping down to verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we are to pray for each other. Prayer is, is one of the most important things, actually, that we can do for each other. We can, we can comfort each other. We can encourage each other. We can do a lot of things for each other. But God, can, he's the only one that can do the impossible, right? He does things that we could never do, like changing hearts. And so often he accomplishes these things through our prayers. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at a specific prayer, one that I think you're very familiar with, one that Jesus taught his disciples uh, when they asked him to teach them how to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to first look at the version in Luke 11, if you guys want to turn there to Luke 11. And, and while you're turning there, I'll just say that we're just going to scratch the surface of this prayer. There's so much here. Um, each line of this prayer could be a sermon in itself. Um, there's, there's, like I said, there's a lot here, but what I want to focus on this morning are two things. Why did Jesus teach the disciples this prayer, and what does it all mean? And so let's start with the context of this prayer. The disciples, they see Jesus wake up every morning and go out and, and find a private, quiet place to spend with the Father to pray. He also sneaks off at other times, um, sometimes in the evening. But they see him, the disciples see him consistently spend time talking to the Father. And so they understand that through his example, they understand that through his example, this is important to him. This is something that is a priority for him. And they understand that he is serious about spending time with the Father in prayer. And so seeing this, seeing his example, it says in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And you may notice here that this version of the Lord's Prayer is a lot shorter than the one that you're used to, right? Um, Jesus taught things more than one time. And, and, and so we see Jesus teaching how to pray again in Matthew 6, that's, which is actually during the Sermon on the Mount. And so... It's there that we find the version of the Lord's Prayer that we're all used to. There's a reason, though, that I wanted to look at this passage first. We will jump over to, to Matthew 6 in a minute, but I want you to see that on two occasions, 
Jesus taught this prayer differently. And I think it's really important for us to know that this prayer is not a magic formula. It's not something that Jesus taught as a magical thing. And if each word is said correctly, magical things will happen. That's not why Jesus taught this. It's, it's not a prayer that we can gain the Lord's favor or his ear from if we say it correctly. Um, Jesus doesn't teach this prayer because they're magical words. He teaches this prayer because he wants the disciples to learn how to pray in as a to use it, sorry, as a guide or a framework when they pray. And God is, is much more interested in the condition of our hearts than reciting some memorized words to him. And we see that in Matthew 6. So if you'd like to uh, flip again over to Matthew 6, um, Jesus is teaching his most famous teaching here, the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 6, verse 5, we see him say, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So what is Jesus saying here? I think we need to back up actually to a few verses to, to see what he's actually saying here. If you back up to verse 1 of this same chapter, chapter 6, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so that sums up what he's talking about here. These people that love to stand up and pray and be heard by other people, they're praying not to be heard by the Father, they're praying to be heard by other people. And, and that's not prayer. Prayer is talking to God. It's not a thing in itself. It's simply talking to God and hearing from God. And so in verse 6, Jesus says it's usually a private thing, prayer, between you and the Father. Jesus isn't condemning public prayer at all, though. He's, he, he prayed publicly on occasion. But what he's saying is that most of the time, this is just between you and God. And he continues, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. When we pray, we don't need to use special words. We don't need to use special phrases or say a bunch of things that we don't really mean. We just need to pour out our hearts before God. We need to be honest before him. That's what he wants. Verse 8, it says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let me back up. He already knows. He knows everything, right? But he wants to hear it from us. He wants us to pour out our hearts and, and to connect with him, to fellowship with him. In Matthew 9, 
Jesus is seen having dinner with tax collectors and with other sinners. And the Pharisees ask his disciples why Jesus would associate with these kinds of people. And Jesus overhears them, and he says in Matthew 9, verse 12, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees tried to live to the letter of the law. They thought religion equaled salvation. And they tried to follow the law to a T. And yet Jesus says here that none of this matters, none of that matters if their hearts are not in the right place. The tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus was associating with were considered unclean and therefore anyone associating with them would be considered unclean. And yet Jesus sat with these people. He, he ate with them. He befriended them because God's heart is for his creation. God's heart is for everyone. No one is considered unsavable. But the Pharisees were more concerned with appearances, with doing things correctly than they were with their hearts. Their hearts were in the wrong place. They focused too much on the outward, the appearance, the sacrifice, the law over their heart. And at one point, Jesus even calls them whitewashed tombs, which look good on the inside, or on the outside, sorry, but on the inside are filled with death. And so all that to say that this prayer is not a formula. God is always more interested in the condition of our hearts than with reciting some memorized words to him. We are to, to pour out our hearts to him in prayer. But if he already knows everything, everything that we're thinking, even things that we don't know about ourselves that are buried deep in our hearts, if he already knows all that, why do we need to say anything at all? Well, part of relationship is communication, right? It's spending time together. And as crazy as it might sound, the God of the universe wants to spend time with us. He wants us to know him. And so in prayer, God speaks to us. We commune with him. And prayer is part of the process of sanctification, where God works in our hearts, and he changes our hearts, and we become more like him in our thoughts and in our motives. The act of prayer changes us because we encounter the living God, our creator, and we begin to understand him more and more the more we spend time with him in prayer. Our hearts begin to look more and more like his. So if the Lord's prayer is a framework, then what does it guide us to? I want us to actually read it together. Could we read it together? Could you guys stand with me? This is from Matthew 6. Jesus says, pray then like this. Let's read this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we has also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So we know why Jesus taught this prayer. It's a framework and a guide 
for us to follow when we pray. But what is it actually about? Jesus starts with our Father in heaven. What is, what is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching for us to call upon the Father. And he did this throughout his ministry, right? He went to a quiet place. He called upon the Father. And if we are children of God, we have a Father in heaven who hears us. We have the ear of the God of the universe. That alone is, is incredible. We get to address God as Father, which he is. He, he's our creator. And not only that, if we ex have accepted Jesus as Lord then we have become children of God. Just as Israel was called God's children, God's people, we are also his children, his people. The next line, which says in some translations, who art in heaven or, or just in heaven, uh, why does Jesus say that the Father is in heaven? In other places of scripture, we see that God is actually everywhere. Um, and the theological term for this is called omnipresent. It means he's present everywhere. I'd like to read a verse for you from Psalm 139. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So why does, why does Jesus distinguish God the Father as being in heaven? Well, maybe he's saying, maybe in saying our Father in heaven, Jesus is saying that God is both close, he is our Father, and far away, who art in heaven. He is both with us wherever we go, and apart from us because of who he is. He is holy. He is too powerful and glorious for us to even comprehend. In fact, when Moses asked to see God in all his glory, God only let Moses see him from behind as he passed by. Moses asks to see him in his glory, the fullness of God's presence. And God says in Exodus 33 to Moses, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God protects Moses from his own glory and his own presence. We can't see God face to face. He's too great for us to see in our present form now. We would be so overwhelmed, we would probably die. And, and, and so God's full glory, his presence, resides in heaven. And yet he is still omnipresent. He is still everywhere, as the Bible tells us. One of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, says, There is no situation or location where I am ever alone because my heavenly Father is always with me. And so we start this prayer that Jesus teaches acknowledging that God is our Father who is with us and yet far away from us, above us. He is holy, he is set apart. 
And that's exactly what the next part of, of the prayer is teaching us too. Hallowed be, be your name. That's another word that we don't use very often, right? Hallowed just means to make holy or to revere as holy. So how do we revere God as holy? Well, it's, it starts with rec- recognizing who he is, that he is much greater than us in every single way. But not, it's not just recognition. We also revere God as holy or honor his name as holy by being holy ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And holy just means set apart. We are called to be set apart from the world. And Peter is referring to God's call here for Israel to be holy. Uh, um, God establishes them as a nation, his people that would be set apart from the world, that would follow after him, that would be different from the world, that would follow God's ways and, and not the ways of the world. And the passage that Peter is referring to when he says, you shall be holy for I am holy, is found in Leviticus when God gives Israel the Ten Commandments. So does that mean that we are holy and set apart when we follow the Ten Commandments? I mean, in a way, yes, but we are not bound to the law anymore because of Jesus. We don't find righteousness in the law. We find it through Jesus, right? But we still, we still live in the way that God wants us to live. We still don't murder. We, we don't steal. We don't commit adultery. We live in obedience to God. We are guided by his way. And when we are obedient to God, we are actually practicing and reflecting his holiness, his set-apartness, because his way is so different from the way of the world. And we see that more and more these days. In the West, um, our countries were founded on Christian principles like the Ten Commandments, but more and more... As, as people turn away from God, things that seem like common sense, like don't murder, start to get distorted. In my home country, Canada, euthanasia is a reality. People who are terminally sick can choose to have doctors end their lives. And now, they're not just talking about terminally ill, they're talking also about mentally ill. If you have a mental illness and you would like to end your life, you can do that as well. And, and that includes depression. And so as the world becomes more and more secular, more and more sinful, it is more and more clear that God's way is different than the, than the world's way. That he is holy and he is set apart. And we are called to be holy as well. We are called to be set apart. And so hallowed be your name. We, we honor your name as holy we revere your name as holy, not just with our words, not just with our prayers, but with our lives. 
the next line in the prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a request for the kingdom of God to become a reality on earth. Not for God's people to be taken from earth to heaven, but for the beauty and the ways of heaven to be made a reality here on earth. God longs for his kingdom to be made a reality here on earth. But he's not going to force it on anybody. Just as Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, declaring himself king and conqueror, that's just not his way. He allows people to choose not to choose him. Everyone on earth has the freedom to not choose God. But there will be a time when it's too late for those who have rejected God to change their minds and repent and choose him. And that day will either be the day that they die or the day that Jesus returns. And Jesus could return anytime, right? He could return tomorrow. We could also die tomorrow. We, we just don't know how long we have on this earth, how long we've been given. As we pray this prayer, we start to realize that part of it is about our willingness to help make God's kingdom a reality here on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a, it's a prayer of surrender. We are aligning our will with his will. We're not just praying for God to come and change things. We are praying in agreement with him to change things. And we are conduits for that change. God is ultimately the one who changes hearts. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I keep turning this off. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. And so the reality is that God chooses to work through his people. He so desperately wanted the world to be transformed through Israel, but there was too much pride they found, they found confidence in being God's people, as they should, his children, but they thought that simply being his people was enough, that, that they could rest in that claim without striving to be people of righteousness, people that loved justice and mercy, and people who had the heart of God, who spread his love and his justice and mercy throughout the world. Instead, they were rebellious and they were full of pride. And we see that over and over again in the interactions of Jesus and the crowds and, and the, the Jewish leaders who he talks to while he's here on earth. Many of them do believe, many, but many can't see past the old way of doing things or the old traditions. When, when tradition for them had become just empty ritual, doing things for its own sake instead of because it led to God and, and, to, and led to becoming the kind of people that he desired, who were humble and repentant and generous and merciful. 
The church is in danger of the exact same thing. It is. And it's so easy for us to fall into empty routine and rituals. Um, it's so easy to fall into the pride of thinking that we're, we're better than other people because we know God and they don't. But that's not God's heart. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we truly mean it, we are already a part of making that a reality because it does require an attitude of humility and surrender. But beyond our attitude and our motives, how do Christians be a part of making God's kingdom a reality on earth as it is in heaven? Well, it requires our whole being, right? Surrendering our will to God's will and living out the teachings of Jesus. And one thing that Jesus taught, or rather commanded, which is essential here when we're talking about our part in, in making God's kingdom or bringing God's kingdom here on earth, spreading his kingdom here on earth, one thing that is essential is, is when Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples. Just before Jesus physically leaves the earth to be with the Father in heaven, he gives this charge to his disciples in Matthew 28. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's kingdom is inaugurated in his son. He, he has become our king. Daniel 7, verse 14, starting in verse 14, says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as king, Jesus charges his people, his disciples, to spread the kingdom by going and baptizing and teaching. Now, going doesn't have to be traveling far. It doesn't have to be going to a far-off place, although some of us are called to be missionaries in far-off places. Go here can just mean proceed, move, get started. And we all know that baptism is the beginning of a believer's faith. It is the public declaration of faith. And so we are to be a part of the process of helping people make a decision to follow Christ. And then finally, we are to teach. We are to disciple others. It doesn't just stop with helping people make a decision. As we grow in our faith, as we learn more and more about who God is, we, we can share that knowledge, right? We, we share our knowledge of who God is. We share our knowledge of how we've surrendered on our own. We all have different stories. And so we teach what we've learned. This is what discipleship is. We teach others the truths of the Bible, and we encourage them in their faith. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and this is a huge part of making God's kingdom more and more of a reality on earth. 
And when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we're also actively involved in it. We're actively engaged. That's why we're praying, right? Because we desire for God's kingdom to come. We know that it leads to good. We know that it leads to change in the world. Because God's kingdom expanding really just means that more and more people are turning to and surrendering to Jesus. And Jesus teaches us to pray for that because it's his commission to us. All right, the next line says, give us this day our daily bread. And we can't just pray this for ourselves. The plural is already built into this line. Um, give us this day our daily bread. And, and sometimes this is a really hard concept for us Westerners. Maybe our Korean friends understand this a little easier. It's more of a collective society. But when we ask God to provide for us, do we ever stop and think and pray that he would provide for those around us? Do we ever think about and pray that he would, sorry, that, that we could do something about it, that, that we could be a part of answering that prayer for someone else, that God could use us to provide for someone else? Do we ever think about how we could be a part of that? Most of us, if not all of us, are not lacking, right? How can, we, how can we be a means for God to provide for someone else? Someone who maybe doesn't have enough for today. Someone who's maybe wondering how they're going to eat tomorrow. And I'm not saying that we don't have needs. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be praying that God would provide for our individual needs as well. We should be praying for God's provision. And he wants us to ask him. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts, sorry, give good things to those who ask him? One of the reasons Jesus includes this part in his prayer is that we have to remember that God provides everything. Not just food and shelter, but health and guidance and direction and friends and community and strength and encouragement. We need to rely on him. When we have a lot, as many of us do, it's easy for us to forget that God is our provider. But we also need to be praying that God would open our eyes to the people around us who are in need. And that he would give us wisdom to know how to help them. I get emails every week from people all over the world asking for help. And that's why we need to pray for wisdom. We, we just can't help everybody. But that shouldn't be our excuse to not help anyone. We need to engage in our communities. And if God, if God calls us to, we need to engage outside of our communities as well. The next line says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And another translation of this is forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. We talked about forgiveness a few weeks ago. Um, and I'd just like to read a verse in 1 John 4, 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. 
And in the same way that we forgive, it, sorry, in that same way, we forgive because he first forgave us. We have experienced true forgiveness from sin. And so we are now able to forgive because we have experienced that forgiveness. We are able to forgive others when they sin against us. Again, we're praying this in agreement when we pray this. Just as we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are a part of making that a reality. Just as we pray for God's provision, we are a part of God's plan to provide for others. In the same way, we are praying this in agreement here. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Unfortunately, there always does seem to be something to confess to God, right? The more we grow in him, the more we grow closer to him, the more we see things that need to change in our lives, things that we need to surrender to him and things that we need to confess. And as we, as we ask for forgiveness and are forgiven, we offer that same forgiveness to others. Right after teaching this prayer, Jesus says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 6, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And, and he's, Jesus is not saying that we haven't been forgiven, justified, and made righteous before God through Jesus. We have. But there are still daily sins that we need to be cleansed from. And if we're not willing to forgive others, then then it says here, God is not willing to forgive us of those sins. And please hear me, sometimes it takes time to forgive. Sometimes it's a process that we have to move towards. What Jesus is saying here, though, that is if you do not forgive, if you refuse to forgive, that's when God says, how can I forgive you if you're not willing to forgive other people? Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. A servant owes his master an enormous sum, and he begs for his master to have patience with him so that he can repay. And the master has pity on him and actually just forgives the whole debt, which is a huge sum. And yet when this same servant encounters one of his own servants who, has, who owes him money, this servant has zero mercy, and he throws his servant into jail. And, and the master, the, the main master, hears about this servant. He's angry, understandably, and he's, he doesn't understand why he has just forgiven this man and this man cannot show the same kind of forgiveness, the same kind of mercy to his own servant, and so he throws him in jail. The point, of course, is that God has shown us mercy and forgiven us a great debt. And we need to offer the same mercy to others, the same mercy that we have been shown. And when we pray this, we pray in agreement with God's desire for us to be merciful as he is merciful. Finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations say, deliver us from the evil one. This is a cry for us. This is a cry for for help for us to live in victory over sin. 
Jesus has overcome sin for us. He has triumphed over sin and death. But in order to remain victorious over sin, we need to continually and daily surrender ourselves to him and his ways. We need to rely on God's strength and provision. But why would, why would we pray for God to, not to lead us into temptation? God doesn't tempt or lead us into temptation, right? James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So maybe the NLT is a little bit more clear on the bottom. You can see it there. It says, and don't let us yield to temptation. So this is a plea for God to protect and to, to guide us around circumstances that may lead to sin. It's also a plea for deliverance, for God to help us escape from sin. God doesn't block every temptation that comes our way. And yet scripture tells us that he does always provide a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, or don't let us yield to temptation, we're asking God to give us the strength and to help us not give in. A temptation itself is not sin, it's giving in to the temptation that's sin, right? And so we need to pray for deliverance. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Can we really resist the devil on our own? Let's look at the whole context of this verse. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So can we resist the devil on our own? No. In humility, we come to God. We ask him for help. And it takes humility to ask for help. We can't do it on our own. And that's why Jesus is teaching us to pray this. So that's a, a very brief overview of the Lord's Prayer. There's so much here. Like I said, we could probably do a sermon on each line of this, this prayer. But I hope you are encouraged, I hope you are challenged to pray this prayer or to use this prayer as a guide when you pray. So let's, let's bow our heads now and go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you hear us. Because of the work of your Son, you are so far above us, God. You are holy, you are set apart, and you sent your Son to rescue us so that we could be changed and we could be united with you. We do pray for your kingdom to come in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And we do pray for those around us, God, that, that they would see in us something different because of the work that you've done in our hearts. And, and that they would, they would come to us and, and, and ask us why. That we would have, we pray that we would have opportunities to share the good news with our friends and our family and our neighbors. We thank you for your provision. We are so blessed. And we pray that we, 
we could somehow be a blessing to others. Give us wisdom to show us where we can be a blessing, God. We thank you for your forgiveness. Help us to offer the same kind of mercy, the same forgiveness that you have shown us. And protect and strengthen us when we are tempted to forget, when we are tempted to walk away. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.